Thanks for tuning in here at Art FM, WXOXLP, Louisville, 97.1 on the dial, always on the internet at artxfm.com, streaming, and you are listening to City State. This is the show where we talk about cities. We talk about cities around the nation, around the world, with a healthy, healthy helping of chat about Louisville, stuff happening in Louisville, design, policy, planning, all the exciting stuff that gets you to tune into us every week. Um, my name is Pat Smith. Once again, uh, coming at you from the home studio here in Schnitzelberg. Um, we got uh, an exciting guest today that, that we, we, we brought in to talk about some specific stuff going down in the Butchertown neighborhood um, of Louisville. His name is um, Mark Long, um, journalist, Butchertown resident, uh, urbanist, if, if I can apply that word without, you know, any bad feeling. I, I, I'm okay with the word urbanist. Uh, but, but before we bring in Mark, I just wanted to um, hand it over to my other co-hosts so they can introduce themselves, tell us what's up, where you at? How's it going? Uh, pretty good. This is Patrick Puma and coming to you from the Belknap neighborhood right now. It's a beautiful day outside. I've got to figure out a way to do this outside sometime. Huh. Yeah, and Patrick Henry coming at you from the Panhandle, Mexico Beach, Florida, which was devastated by a hurricane <laughs> two years ago, so... You know, half the trees around us are blown over, but um, we do have a beach, and uh, we've had a lot of rain, but it's sunny outside now. So at this moment of sun, I'm inside doing the show. Good good on you for bringing some tourism recovery dollars down there, down there to the panhandle. And, and Mark, I mean, we had you on specifically to talk about um, Butchertown. And a, a new project that's being proposed down there. But, you know, you're here, you were game, and we'll just, you know, have you on the whole show to get your, you know, your take on all the other stuff we talk about if, if you're amenable to that. So what's going on, Mark? How you doing? Where are you coming from? I'm good and I'm game for all that. I'm in uh, Butchertown, uh, not far from the banks of Mighty Beargrass. And yeah, it's a beautiful day. Yeah, it's a really, really nice here. What, Henry, is it like is it like twenty degrees hotter down there in Florida? Because it's like in the mid seventies yeah. here, right? Here's the deal. Yeah, <clears throat> it's. I think it's probably in the low eighties here. We've had some pretty cool weather here. I mean, the the temps are generally about the same, except I know you all have had cool weather, but you can walk out on the beach. So mm -hmm. there you go. Because Mark yeah. Long was like, "What are you doing, man? You're going to the Great Swamp." <laughs> and, you know, Louisville is just as much of a swamp, but it doesn't have a beach. So it doesn't have super Transylvania nice beach. Beaches. Oh, oh, well, that was one thing I think we wanted to get into a little bit today um, in this first segment. Since you were down there, you you've been sort of popping in on one of the new urbanism community sort of uh, OG communities for this, you know, I guess. I don't know what kind of wave you want to call it of, of, of kind of intentional walkable town development, you know, but, but new urbanism ha has been that thing for at least a, a few decades um, here in, um, in the United States in, in Seaside is, is one of these kind of big examples of, of new urbanism that gets like, you know, the, the pictures, it, it makes it into um the people that are the big proponents of new urbanism's PowerPoints at, at some point, usually. Um, and just to put this into perspective for Louisville, Louisville's big new urbanist development is, is Norton Commons. And, you know, back on that, that beach idea, we were sort of talking about, well, what are some of the key differences, you know, between the new urbanist um, towns of Norton Commons and, and Seaside, Florida, which is kind of where you're close to, Henry. And, you know, my first thought was it, it does not have that big, nice beach but, <laughs> but anyway yeah. i don't know you, you guys wanted to talk about new urbanism you you've just been you know touring around like seaside what are your thoughts why is this important to talk about 
what do you want to know? I, I know it's it's just cool to be in a setting like that where it's like a tight, dense village with cool design and good planning. And I think we just love to hear a little bit more on that. Yeah. It, you know, I've been lucky. I was out at Norton Commons like within the last week. And so I've been to Norton Commons. Um, we went over to Rosemary Beach, which is uh, like seven, I think about seven miles down from Seaside and went to Seaside. And we've spent a bunch of time at both Seaside and Rosemary Beach. And so it's fun to sort of look at them and compare and think about what's different here um, and what's the same. And but the biggest thing that, you know, they all sort of exhibit in their town centers are um, activity. You know, I mean, even in Norton Commons, you know, it it's active, it's bustling, there's stuff going on. But of course, here at Seaside, my daughter and I, we were over there yesterday and it's just, there's just so much going on. And so that's a lot of fun, you know, food trucks and, uh, you know, it has all those things you think about as far as like common spaces, you know, amphitheater, uh, lots of great amenity spaces, these sort of like pedestrian courts and stuff. And, and the, some of the differences that you see there, one, obviously the architecture, I mean, that was kind of built um one i think it started in the 80s that they started actually developing it and it's about an 80 acre um sort of development and so it's been there for a while so the trees have all had time to sort of grow and do their thing um but they the thing i really enjoy about it is it's very sort of the scale of it um is really tight. It's tighter than like what we have at Norton Commons, um, where like the streets are generally, you know, maybe 10 feet in, um, you know, 10 feet wide, right? And there's a lot of sort of pedestrian, just little pedestrian corridors and, and alleyways and stuff. And there's some, I think, more separation from, say, the car to the pedestrian. Uh, and, you know, and it's a it's obviously it's a richer I mean, Florida, there's a lot of money here. So, you know, the material palette's a little richer. Um, so all the streets are pavers or something like that. That comes with a price. I mean, I think one of you guys was pointing out that like the most affordable, um, you know, like two bedroom property that you saw on Zillow was something like a little over one and a half million or maybe it was over two and a half million. Well, that so, was my question. Do the people that work there live there? No. And if not, where? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, they're, they're living outside of it, right? Yeah. Uh, so they, affordability is not a part of that development. Uh, it's not a part. Um, can you all still hear me? Oh, yeah. I was worried I cut out for a second. It's not a part of um, uh, the, you know, Rosemary Beach. And I think... There have been some efforts, and I don't know how successful they are, but there have been some efforts like at the Norton Commons uh, for affordability. One thing I was going to say is that that Seaside sort of did this like this Florida sort of cracker box style of architecture, which is pretty fantastic. Um, and that's what makes up the bulk of the buildings. But then they still mingle in some modernism and you know a little bit of victorian and just some different styles and stuff um but it is for someone who does design work for a living it it's it's pretty glorious as far as an experience you know yeah totally i mean this is like a little bit of a of a distortion but i mean the, the way i've always looked at new urbanism and i, I think you know people in the, the critics and and, and and writers as well i mean this is like sort of like the just the next or the or the modern iteration of something like kind of a garden city movement right where like the whole oh yeah the whole town is planned out and then gets built according to pretty much probably not 100 percent, but pretty much according to the, the layout where you know in, in the past and traditionally cities kind of form organically towns form organically you know th this is like the 19 beginning of the 1980s you know, version of the the kind of early 19th century, 18th century, 20th century, sorry, Garden City movement. But I think a lot of people that, that you know, 
a lot of people don't realize that they may have already spent about two hours in Seaside because it was, um, even if you haven't been there in person, but it was like the set of the Truman show. Right. So like, um, <laughs> the, the, the great Jim Carrey movie about, um, uh, gosh, so it's a lot of themes, a lot of themes in it. it go ahead, Henry. What are you well, I, I was going to come back to this, the garden city movement yeah. and, um, was the garden city movement, a sort of a step away from the sort of dense city. Um, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and oddly enough, I think some of these developments, both Seaside and Rosemary Beach, uh, and I think to some extent um, Norton Commons in it, you know, it's obviously a bit of an island. Um, and, uh, but, but, these both those de developments feel pretty European in their mm -hmm. density. I mean, they are mostly single-family housing, but there is multi-family and mixed-use housing within these developments. Um, I don't know if anybody found sort of density levels in in any sort of research or anything. I know Puma, you were looking for that, but may not have been able to get your hands on it. Yeah. Um, I don't know about but the density it, per acre or anything, but just in scale for people here in Louisville, and I don't know that Norton Commons is 100% finished yet, but just I think currently, I think we were estimating that Norton Commons had about 5,000 people maybe around there, and Seaside's got at least 10,000 just to sort of sort of get get a, get your head around the the size of these um, the small towns. And thanks thanks for stopping me from starting to analyze the Truman show. I was a hundred percent getting ready to just shift the entire focus over to Truman show chat. So, well, I have a question, you know, speaking of uh, European feel and cracker boxes, what is the demographic mix there? Is it, does it it's, look like America? It's a hundred percent people involved with Alabama well, coaching. If, no, sorry. <laughs> go ahead, Henry. I'm glad you brought this up because, um, it is very white, uh, upper middle class, or there's a lot of, um, I think what you would think of is like Asian or maybe East Asian, like people of either sort of wealthy uh, travelers, right, coming over to the U.S. Um, to check it out, uh, or, you know, again, that sort of that sort of wealthy white or upper middle class white group. And as one of the things I did as, as when I drove out of there is I just did this drive down um, like the scenic sort of whatever the scenic parkway is. It runs through Panama City because it's right next to Panama City. And, and, and Panama City is kind of, I think, what a lot of people think of as sort of typical Florida um, you know, in the sense of like a Daytona beach kind of thing. Right. So tall, you know, 30, 20 to 30 story hotels built right on the beach. And, and so, so on your right is the beach and these hotels on your left is like restaurants, like, you know, there's the Hooters mixed in with the such and such crab shack with, you know, that kind of stuff. And so you go from that sort of wealthy white or wealthy kind of foreigner coming to visit to um, to basically America. So there you see uh, people of all sort of colors and and economic backgrounds, I'm assuming. Yeah. That's when it gets interesting. Yeah. And then and then even sort of driving through like old Panama, which we're not going to get into, but looks like some like when you drive through sections of Kentucky where you run through an old town, there's the old town square. It's a little bit dilapidated. A few of the buildings are boarded up. Um, so you're going through old Panama, you see some of that. And then going over to like Apalachicola, where there's like a little brewery and maybe it's a writer's, you know, it's sort of known for writer's. Uh, sort of visiting and and things like that. So they've sort of spanned the. Uh, and what I do when I go to a place is, while everybody's just sitting out on the beach, my brain's going 100 miles a minute, and I want to sort of hit every spot I can hit. <laughs> so that's what I did. You know, I visited all the places. 
Yeah, one of the things, when we were talking about this sort of difference between Norton Commons here in Louisville and the development like Seaside, um, it, it seems like there's like this good mix. You look down the list of kind of the examples of, of big new urbanist projects in the States, like a, a good chunk of them are like sort of like resort communities, second homes. And, yeah. and I, I find that interesting because you had sent us some pictures yesterday of kind of not necessarily in Seaside, but in kind of the area which, you know, has a lot of resort stuff going on is, you know, pretty you know good like cycling infrastructure and pretty decent oh, yeah. like um, mixed yeah. use sorts of activities going on. And, and to me, like this sort of using new urbanism like as the sort of model and jumping off point for like 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 vacation home development right it's like it's it's funny that you have to imagine like a lot of the people that have this as a vacation home don't necessarily have this kind of density or this kind of like good bike lanes for those beach bikes or whatever where they're coming from right like yeah. so it's like we're gonna like you know the fun vacation plan place is the place with good urban design but then when we go home for the other 49 weeks of the year or whatever, it's, you know, likely outside of the town, you know, sprawling. Um, I don't know. I, I just I, I think that that's like an interesting thing. Exactly. We had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. It was like somehow people can't translate that in our own homes. Yet we yeah. come here, you know, there's there's mass transit lanes, there's bike lanes and that's even in your places like Panama City, where, you know, it's not a new urbanist development, but that stuff spreads out, I think, across the state here. Yeah. And also maybe a part of that is just that it's like more likely that like a resort community is going to be just completely planned out like that. You know, from the get go, like here's the whole all the parcels together and how they're going to look versus, well, you know, sort of a more traditional growth of a, of a neighborhood of a city on the outskirts of the city or near the city, either one, you know. Yeah. And how much of that is also dictated by the bike rental places who are pushing and lobbying for that. Right. So they're all over the place. Um, and so therefore they have that infrastructure. Oh, yeah. So capitalism wins again, man. The, the bike. Yeah, man. Uh, that's a good point. Well, we I are coming have, here. I, Go ahead. Can man. I ask oh. another question? Yeah, please. So um, you say that it's built with the look of old Florida to some extent. Do the buildings work like old Florida? I'm, I'm curious about like passive cooling. I mean, how do they, how do they function? I mean, is it a functional old school design or it, you're or asking is it just me, surface? It's probably, there's probably a lot of surface to it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the answer to those questions because uh, I'm not an architect. Right. Um, and I don't ever stay, I've never stayed in the buildings at Seaside. We've always sort of stayed on the outskirts, like water sound. That does oh, seem to ahead. be a hallmark, though, of, of new urbanist developments, though, is that they engage real deal architects to to build like real real deal yeah. buildings so I, I i'm would, glad you brought that up i would yeah. not be surprised if like they they had some of the those like sort of passive cooling ventilation yeah. like like that kind of things because my understanding is that architects are excited to be a part of these projects and yeah. they're like they're not just sort of like you know hurricane bay with the like new orleans style yeah. shutters <laughs> tacked on to like a, a, a totally you know yeah. crappy prefab building but, and and they put the on each of those houses in all because there's a bunch of different um, d of these developments, you know, from uh, Alice Beach to watercolors. There's a ton of them. Right. Uh, and so but the thing I like about it is that they list who the architect is for each house yeah. in a little plaque out in front of it. So they'll list the architect, yeah. the builder, that kind of stuff. I know we got to do some business. And you oh. don't see many affordable housing opportunities that have those architects listed <laughs> you know, on the on the front. <laughs> so I mean, I, I guess that that th those big name architects with the cool design, you know, definitely are adding to the the big prices there. But yes, business. Thank you for listening to WXOX LP Louisville. We have so many fantastic shows here on the station, and you know, one of the guys that I really like to uh, listen to his stuff. He is in the band 
the smacks that did our um, theme song music that comes in and, and, and takes us out at every show. He's got a couple of shows on Monday nights. Um, the sort of second half of his stuff at 8 p.m. on Mondays is called Night Train Cocktail Lounge. And um, Brian Manley rides into the past featuring music, lost sounds from the 1860s to the 1970s. The show follows the rails amid a mix of directions, including surf, soundtracks, garage, proto-punk, pop, no-wave, jazz, composed, blues, comedy, cylinder, and 78 recordings, rock and roll, old country, field recordings from around the world, and whatever is scratched onto warped vinyl, hidden in the bottom of those boxes, tucked away in your grandmother's attic, every Monday at 8 p.m. here on Art FM. Well, this is, we're coming into the Butchertown segment of the show, and this is why we brought on um, Mark Long, journalist, Butchertown resident, um, urbanist. Thank you again, Mark, for coming on. It's great to have you with us. We, I, I guess, I don't even know where you guys want to go with this. I mean, I think the idea was that there was a really kind of big new, in the eyes of some like game-changing development proposed for the Butchertown neighborhood, multi, you know, mixed family, commercial, six stories, talking about 170 something units, I think. Um, and, and we'll get into that. But I think, you know, first, I just wanted to, to paint like a audio picture of what Butchertown even is, where it came from, how it got to be like, you know, kind of a an, an area of interest, assets, issues, Everybody, you know, feel free to jump in, elbow each other out of the way. But, um, I mean, maybe just to start with you, Mark, uh, as, as our guest, I mean, I think you represent the Neighborhood Association there. I'm not sure how long you've been a resident, but I think you're in a great place to just tell us a little bit about Butchertown. Sure. I was uh, I was on the Neighborhood Association board actually until this morning, but, but because of this 835 East Main development, I realized I was, you know, pretty dispassionate about this thing and I didn't really, I didn't feel comfortable like coming down on one side or the other too hard. Um, I first moved to Butchertown in 1992 um, and lived here through the 90s. And then I got away and lived in New York and London for about 19 years and came back three years ago. Um, it's changed a little bit since I first lived here. You know, but at the same time, a lot of the, the, the issues remain the same, the way the traffic blasts through town, the lack of, you know, certain amenities. Yeah. And, you know, some of the same old fights continue um, that some have calmed down somewhat. Like, I think it's pretty much settled that the Swift plant is going to be there. And, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating um, area. The history is fascinating. I'm very interested in Beargrass Creek, and that's why it's here, because all the Germans came in in the mid-19th century, you know, set up these sort of wildcat, you know, butcher operations so that they could dump all the blood and guts into <laughs> Beargrass Creek. And in fact, like, you know, I live on the creek and across the way there was a, what used to be a, a candle maker. They, they would gather all of the offal and fat and produce candles. So, yeah, and it's, and it's, and it's unique in the city, as you know, as being so very mixed use, you have light industrial right up next to, you know, a family's home, right up next to a bar. Yeah, the uh, I love the just the sort of plain and simple fact that, you know, once a certain, we reach a certain point in history, like it seems like the main economic reason for people to come to Louisville, like outside of the river transport is the fact that you can just dump stuff into waterways. That's like right. uh, whether we're talking about uh, cow's blood or whether we're talking about the most like disturbingly messed up chemicals that man has ever like, like, you know, invented for tires or paints or whatever. Like, you know, it's like, Hey, here's our economic development scheme. You can come to our city and dump stuff in the river. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, there's so, so much to the history. Like I, I love, you know, starting from that point of the small sort of, you know, independent butchers coming in, butchering, butchering, down on the first floor, living up above um, yep. whatever they had um, going on yep. downstairs. I guess just living above big piles of raw meat. But um, at and some you know, point, I mean, yeah. Story Avenue, those iron fences were there to keep the pigs out because they would run uh, down Story Avenue. You know, yeah. <laughs> so that's why those particular things are there. 
it must have just been a sight to see. I would love to have checked it out. Um, I wish, I mean, there was like more sort of, um, gosh, sketches and, and, and old photos of the whole area. But it's cool to see the ones that do exist. And at some point, like sort of big, big butchery came in with um, the bourbon stockyards. And, mm -hmm. and I, don't, I, I don't know what the exact relationship is there between the bourbon stockyards of yesteryear, which I'm just learning thanks to this show that the bourbon stockyards were around until the mid 90s. Which is yep. um, yeah, pretty incredible. I mean, and here's a, Henry, you probably here's remember a, that. Here's right? a scary fact: people used to live underneath it. Oh, just wow. like there, yeah, it was. Oh. Um, Mark, yeah. were you, were you here when they tore it down? Uh, no, no. So, I was here when it existed, and I was here after it did not. So I lived in Butchertown when they tore it down, and the rat population mm -hmm. was insane. Oh, and sure. like all of a sudden in restaurants like down in Nulu and stuff, you'd have rats just like walking out, you know, who'd be, that had been like poisoned and were kind of out of it oh and just God. walking out into the dining room. I mean, that sounds a little dramatic. Um, <laughs> well, that's the urban vibe people bought into. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I wish we had in, Bur in Butchertown was still the occasional like small town butcher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Versus I mean, say the Swiss. Go down and get a get a you know artisanal country ham, you know, exactly. from right there. That would be better than um, you know, or, big or just Brazilian. like half a half a sheep, you know? Yeah. Like I want a whole half of the sheep and we're gonna throw yeah. that sucker like on some kind of giant spit. I don't know, that's probably unrealistic. <laughs> I mean one thing one thing is interesting about Butcher Town too is just how German it used to be. I yeah. I, I went to mass for the first time in a very long time at St. Joe a few weeks ago and which now has a Bolivian priest. Um, yeah. The biggest mass by far is the Spanish language mass at 1230. But right up there next to the, you know, right in front of the, at the, at the end of the nave, you know, before you get to the altar, there's an American flag and a German flag. Oh, and, wow. you know, it, it, that, that stamp is still there, even though. <laughs> and those, uh, those, those, those steeples there are like trait of the neighborhood, just like uh, a symbol oh. of the neighborhood. Totally mm -hmm. gorgeous. You can see them from um, a ways away. And I don't know if they're the highest. I think people have claimed they're the highest. I don't know if the data is there for that or the last time anybody checked. But they're they're oh. prominent, and, and they're a really cool sort of feature for the neighborhood. Yeah, and I'm glad they're getting saved. I mean, it's, I mean it kind of raises some questions about how you spend money because it's costing, I think, a couple of million to restore them. But... Um... Yeah, it, it's a distinct and beautiful landmark. Yeah, that's a debate Absolutely. to be had for sure. And it's something that's, I think, particularly relevant for a city like Louisville, where we have all of those old churches with those mm -hmm. huge, you know, steeples all the way from Butchertown through old Louisville. And, you know, those congregations are dwindling and they yeah. don't have a lot of cash. And even maybe like sort of the regional or national networks of who, whatever church group is in charge of those churches now. I mean, at one point, like, when does it become dangerous? And then at another point, I mean, I guess they're just going to need to be demolished in a lot of cases. Not not, not the ones in Butchertown. It sounds like they're going to be saved. Yeah. But a lot of those cool old steeples are just going to not be um, on the skyline or the horizon anymore. And it's it's sad, but uh, I don't know. You know, people, times change, uh, priorities change. And, man, it's just a, a well, thing that neighborhoods have to deal with. Yeah, and if you don't have a living parish and if you have, you know, people living in tents a block away, I mean, it's hard to make the case. Yeah. But, I mean, on the other hand, the archdiocese. Well, I don't think it's hard to make the case. The oh, archdiocese the case. Is, isn't poor. They've had to spend their money other ways recently, but, you know. I mean, I, I would say if you go to any great city, they have protected their architecture, right, for the most part. And so I understand we have sort of, uh, say, a separation of church and state, but I, I think I could argue for saving good architecture that has some kind of cultural history and importance. And, and I think you can do that and also um, help the homeless. I mean, what would be good would be to do it together. And yeah. instead of freezing a building in amber and, you know, preserving something that used to be, rethink what could be done with that building and have a renovation and, 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 you know, sort of 
social renovation, you know, put put it to use. Let's read because I mean the parishes used to be the center of the neighborhood and they're just not anymore. And you know, in a lot of cases, nothing has really replaced them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in some pla- some of the places we think of as neighborhoods, I mean, I kind of struggle to think of as neighborhoods at all. They're like more like collections of houses with lines around them that, yeah. you know, harken back to what used to be living neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, well, Butchertown has had this sort of status as a, as a neighborhood or, you know, a, a town in mm-hmm. its own right um, before it was annexed into the city. I'm just throwing this year out there, 1846. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not I sure. Think, I know Portland certainly was a was a separate city. I, yeah. I don't think Butchertown really. It was just really a settlement. Was. Yeah. Yeah, it was a settlement, and it did get absorbed into the like. Finally, they're yeah. like, okay, this really smells horrible. We have <laughs> to lay down the law, so we'll make this part of Louisville. Yeah. So, so like, um, you know, it might have gone back to when they diverted Beargrass Creek. Actually, oh, that, that, right. That right. all might have been around the same time, I think, like 1846-ish. I think you were right there. But that's when they made the, um, you know, the, the cut to where it enters the Ohio now. Yeah. So, But I, I guess coming into modern times, you know, like um, in the early part of the 1900s, like this was just this became kind of a very like downtrodden part of the city. And looking at old newspapers, they, you know, say like it was basically, you know, slumlords had taken over Butchertown. And it was all these kinds of dilapidated homes, like super out of date, maybe not having plumbing. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and then urban renewal starts hitting and you've got whole squads of neighborhoods being taken out into the, the early 1960s. And, and it looks like some people start to band together in the Butchertown neighborhood and, and people that had lived there historically, their families had lived there. Uh, people that like recognized some of the architectural value in the neighborhood, people that wanted to be in town and weren't, you know, jumping out to the suburbs uh, as a lot of their peers and a lot of their contemporaries were. And and you, you get some really like interesting work. And, and I don't, I don't know, like th- th- this organization comes together called Butchertown Inc. And I don't know if they were like a nonprofit. I don't, I, I don't, did we, did we even have nonprofits in the, in the mid 1960s? Probably. I, I don't remember. I don't know. Um, I didn't do well, that Well, Butchertown specifically, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, kind of comes down to one guy, Jim Segrist. Yeah. Who, yeah. I mean, there was a time in the late seventies and in the eighties, you know, you didn't ha- you didn't have a Butchertown neighborhood association. You had a Butchertown neighborhood government. Yeah. And, okay. you know, yeah, looking, yeah. looking at the 1980 neighborhood plan is extremely interesting because it is it's very very different from what we see today i mean it goes into you know political philosophy you know it's you know block by block histories of 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 everything in the neighborhood um but you know going back even further i mean it, it i mean for butchertown specifically um, it's not just urban renewal. I mean, you got to remember the floods wiped out. Yeah, I mean, the point yeah, was the point yeah. was one of, if not the most densely populated portions of the city. And I think you know there was a '37 flood, which you know, white literally wiped out a lot of people. And then everyone forgets about the 1945 flood, which was really, really, really bad too. And I think that's when the city said, okay, that's it. Everything got condemned, and um, they were like zoned as industrial. At that point, yeah, right? And, like, dump, and that's when the dump started, yeah. in, you know, in, in earnest. And, and then to bring it uh, back to Segrist, you were talking about, like, when I mentioned yeah. urban renewal in, into the 60s, like, people like Segrist were afraid of urban renewal and what it might do to Butchertown. Um, and they sort of jumped in before urban renewal could totally, um, I, I guess, wipe it, wipe it fully out. But I love, I'm reading this really cool, gosh, I, I guess, like, in the Louisville Times, there was, like, a Louisville Times mm-hmm. magazine like it's in the the early seventies or lasted longer than that. I'm sure. But I don't know that courier has a magazine now, but back when people had big papers and you'd put a little glossy magazine in there in the weekend, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) There's this, uh, Really cool article about Butchertown, December 9th, 1973. Segrist um, features prominently in it. Some of his quotes are crazy because we're talking about 1973. We're talking about work he's doing with um, Butchertown Inc., the Butchertown governance that you're talking about to revitalize the Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And he's talking about – listen, these quotes are amazing. I think it's time we do an about face on our focus on neighborhoods. We've been encouraging people to move into Butchertown, but now poorer people are being displaced when others buy their homes because this is getting to be a cool place to live. 
now we're getting a shortage of housing. This dude's saying this in 1973. Like, um, yep. this oh, is yeah. like, this isn't new. Nothing that we're going through is new. Nothing and, is like, new. And, and <laughs> the idea that there was worries about displacement in Butchertown, you know, 50 years ago is, is absolutely mm-hmm. amazing and incredible. It seems like largely that displacement did happen, um, you know, to bring us into like where we are currently with the current neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that was a really cool quote. But long story short, these people did a lot of cool stuff. They got like some of the first four way stops in the neighborhood, which is a battle I try to fight here in Schnitzelberg to no avail. They got zoning changed from, I think, that huge industrial designation that you were talking about sometime in the, the 40s or early mid-century. They got commercial and residential zoning put back. Um, really cool group. They, they were buying houses themselves, rehabilitating yes. them, and then selling them to families that they wanted to move to the neighborhood or that had an interest in moving to the neighborhood. And oftentimes that weren't well-off people. Like, it, it was... An, you don't really see that out of a lot of groups today. I guess like the most current kind of um, corollary might be like a community, um, like a CDC, like like a community mm-hmm. development corporation. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I mean, that is all largely due to the singular and forceful personality of, of Jim Segrist, who he was not afraid to make enemies. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and I believe, you know, he had a business interest in some of this too. Yeah. I mean, let's not, let's not forget that. But um, he was a very forceful advocate for for the neighborhood and, and pretty far sighted, as you can see. Really cool sounding guys. It sounds like he would he would get into like one of these dilapidated old buildings, probably built in like 1880 or something, restore it, sell it, and mm-hmm. then do a new one. Like, and then restore it, sell it, and then get into another one. Like, um, yeah. r- really fascinating character. Big stuff coming up. There was a piece in the Courier Journal recently from a great. Um, urban journalist Lucas Albach. This was from a couple of, gosh, a week and a half or so ago. Is 835 East Main Street a, quote, gateway to Butchertown or a step to, quote, dismantle Butchertown? So this is, like, I guess a thing. It's controversial. Any kind of big, dense, in my opinion, cool, awesome type development like this is going to see some some backlash um, from residents, but but I don't know. Basically, we got a proposal for a big mixed-use building at 835 East Main Street. It's got to sort of um, come into the Butchertown neighborhood a little bit on the corner of Washington. Who, who wants to describe what this building looks like, where it came from, what's up, and then we can get into a little bit of the um, controversy. I, I don't mind doing a little description. Um, I'm on the design team, so... I'll probably keep my uh, opinions to myself for the most part. Understand. Um, but but it's a mixed-use building. Um, it's basically it's a six-story tall building. Um, you know, the ground floor is uh, commercial. So you think of little shops. Edward Lee has agreed to do a restaurant in the corner. Um, and so there are sort of shops facing Market Street and then shops also there's a little bit of sort of commercial space available on Washington Street, which runs parallel to um, to Main Street. Right. And so we know that Main Street is is this sort of mixed use kind of corridor with structures anywhere from, say, a story to, I think, um, you know, a directly across the street, you've got like a four story building and say down, maybe, five. okay, it's five. a five story building. Sorry. Um, and directly down, maybe a few blocks, you've got like clay and main, which is six or seven stories. So yeah. we see that kind of scale on main street. If you go back to Washington street, which is again, runs parallel to Maine. Typically, what you're seeing on on Washington is one to three story, uh, mostly residential um, units. So the property itself is in this weird edge condition, right? Mm-hmm. So it's on the edge of Maine. There's a lot, you know, again, commercial corridor and all that kind of stuff. And then just one block in is this sort of residential scale. So you've got this building that kind of straddles the two blocks and is trying to meet the demands 
of um, both sides in a way as best that, that it can. And so, you know, what they've done is they've used some architectural tricks with, you know, setbacks and switching up of materials and things like that to, yeah. um, you know, to make it to, to make it feel like it sort of fits in. The issue is even that, though it's that warehouse, the issue is that that warehouse extends through the block, like into like the residential part on East Washington. Like that's that's the that's the piece of this that like people are are are, are kind of like this the piece of this property that is adjacent to the houses on Washington. That's the part that's that's controversial, right? Yeah, so it's the property is basically an L-shaped piece of property that sits on the it sits at uh Washington, Maine and Campbell. And yeah. so the long portion of the property runs down Maine. And then the shorter part of the L runs down Campbell, but sort of takes up that Washington Street um, portion. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um, I think, you know, we would obviously argue that uh, it sort of fits the scale of the neighborhood, that it's an edge condition. And I think you get some um, you, you there's always you know, every development. It's important to know this, that every development for the most part goes through this process of uh, maybe not an architectural review because not all developments happen in historic neighborhoods where there are architectural reviews. But a lot of developments go through either like what they call BOZA, um, uh, which is the, the uh, it's born of zoning. I don't know what A stands. Adjustment. Adjustments, yes. Um, so if you're doing some kind of variance on height or setback, it goes to BOZA. Um, if you need some kind of a waiver for something, it goes up in front of the planning commission. Yeah. And most projects of any scale go through one or both of those processes because they have to get some kind of adjustment to sort of make some kind of exception on a property, right? That happens very regularly. So I'm just stating that, yes. and um, it's very common. And so I think in this case, there were some people that were felt like this development was too big or whatever. Or and it, that, you know, that, that is the next step. It, it's it's made it through the Butchertown Architectural Review Committee. Is it it's the next step that it's going to the Board of Zoning Adjustment? Yes, correct. Cool. It's and a, the, and one of the and, issues yeah. one of the issues you've got on that you know square block is that unlike most of the square blocks around there, there's no alley. And and so for the variance that they're seeking is there, there's supposed to be a 15 foot um, setback between what would be the, the the parking garage and the back of, I think, five houses. And and so the, that's one big objection. Um, they don't want it so close. And then there's an objection to the height. And, you know, after I mean, I listened to the whole like what? five-hour um, ARC okay. meeting, the, the first awful. one. I didn't catch, it was actually pretty interesting. Um, oh, okay. And I, I mean, it, it kind of made me a little sad too, because, you know, you've got people tearing each other apart to some extent. It, it wasn't nearly as nasty as, as, as some I'm, I'm familiar with. But, um, you know, people get extremely emotional and it, it just seems to me that a lot of this stuff, it's just like, let's, let's all take a breath and, 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 and just figure this out. I mean, there, everyone is being rational here. It is not going to be nice for those five houses, you know, and they made a certain bet with their life savings or whatever yeah. to have certain things a certain way. And, you know, one thing that, you know, really strikes me is that, you know, there's all kinds of nuance, there's all kinds of, you know, complications with this thing, but it really all boils down to that basic, basic thing in Louisville, which is parking. And, you know, and you've got a catch-22 situation here where the reason that the building is the height that it is is that you've basically got an apartment building on top of a parking garage that's two stories. Yeah. You know, a, I don't think anyone would object to a four-story apartment building. And so you've got this parking in there that you, that you have to have if you're going to have any sort of successful development in Louisville. At the same time, it's not enough parking for all of the units and for all of the, you know, um, people who would be visiting the restaurant and the shops and so on. The people who don't have an alley who abut the building, they're dependent on street parking. And, you know, 
I can totally understand people are like, you know, tough luck. This is, you know, this is, this is what you bought into. But on the other hand, it's not what they bought into. And I just can't help but thinking like, you know, it's five people. Surely something could be figured out here. And I also think, too, like, let's use this as an opportunity to start, you know, having some more difficult conversations. And, you know, because what I think is disappointing is that you've got the developer, who, you know, local developers, you've got neighbors, you know, you've got members of the board, you know, kind of going at each other uh, about this. But it's over things, you know, decisions that aren't being made higher up the chain. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. this is our opportunity to fix parking here. You're saying you know? five five people like five residences that yeah, five are opposed in, in wanting to hold up. I don't know that all five of them are opposed. I don't know that all five are opposed. Yeah. Yeah. But affected. But the, yeah. 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 But, but that's so interesting because that's the thing that you see over and over again, where neighborhood groups prevent uh, apartments in, in multifamily housing where you've got a, literally it's a handful of people that, can throw cogs into the system to prevent dozens and dozens, if not over a hundred units. And it happens over and over and over again. I mean, it seems like one solution here, and it seems like it's just, it's maybe like going to be a requisite for butcher town. It couldn't just like a simple thing, like the parking permits for residents on Washington street. I, I lived in butcher town for just like a hot minute for like a year and went to a few meetings and um, and I brought up that issue in, in I think a couple of the four meetings I went to, and I think a couple of people were like, "Yeah, we should get on that," but it means that we have to do some kind of a survey of the residents. But like, it's it just seemed like there was no enthusiasm for that idea among that group. And um, I'm just like curious, like why, as a resident, like you you wouldn't be kind of fighting for, pushing, and and making that happen. For your street, because not only are you going to have these kinds of apartment developments on Main Street, but you get the whole situation with a, a pro soccer team to the north. So, like, well, and I think that plus this development might be what you know make you know finally gets people to to make that happen. I mean, you know, I lived in I lived in Jersey City for many years. Parking is a blood sport there. I mean, oh, yeah. part of me is like, you know, this is nothing. However. With the, you know, with, you know, full capacity stadium with this thing going up, you know, is it, is it right to, you know, throw, you know, residents who, you know, made a bet with their fortunes to throw them into the volcano with, you know, you know, chance of density and blah, blah, blah. We can work something out here. This is an opportunity. There's all kinds of interesting things being thought about, like, let's put in some parking meters. Let's make it the revenue go to the block, you know, or a portion of it. You know, there's ways to think this out. And this might be the opportunity to do that. And it's a problem citywide, and it's going to keep coming up and uh, up again and again and again until we think about the bigger problem. And hopefully we can do that because what the, what happens is you end up pitting, you know, goodwilled people who have very rational objections against each other. Yeah. And, you know, totally. it, it, and people, people start making villains out of each other. And, you know, yeah. that's, in, in, that, that, that's hyper, a problem. Hyperbole and... Yes. talking about the Manhattanization of their neighborhood or whatever. Like, but the place to do that is not the Butchertown Architectural Review Committee, or is it? I mean, it's not Louisville's Board of Zoning Adjustment, or is it? I mean, where does this conversation happen to, to get to where you go, you're talking I mean, about? If, you, if, you're in, if you're in that position, you go where you can go. Yeah. And I mean, what yeah, up, yeah. You, know, this, you, 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 you make your objections. And I mean, I don't think... I mean, I haven't really heard any, you know, strenuous objections to the to the, you know, a, a development, a mixed use development with that many units per se. It's, you know, it's a matter of how it's done. And, you know, a lot of the things that are controlling how it's done are sort of decisions that need to be made up the chain here, I think. Um, yeah, that, with that the, that's with what it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, a larger conversation about like what what do we want this city to look like? Um, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, this is urban. Well, it's like, is it really? I mean, you can't walk to get the things you need. That I don't. If if you can't walk to get the things you need, I don't think that really counts as urban. You can get some of the things that you need. <laughs> you can, you, <laughs> but you cannot yeah, you get. Can get I mean, that was my biggest bummer and with living there uh, you have obviously lived there a lot longer in different periods yeah. of your life than i did i lived there for about a year 
And yeah, you're you're just a hundred percent right. I mean that that little corner store was, it was, it had been vacant a long Cares. time, and it had been totally flipped. And they wanted like this enormous amount of money for somebody to do a boutique there. I don't know if that ever happened. Um, I'm trying to think of the exact. That was on yeah. Washington. And, and um, I think you Shelby, need think. more density. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. you need more density in order to get those things that make it like the groceries. You got to have enough people living there. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up. Fact. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the idea of some kind of maybe a sticker system or something. I mean, I don't know. I lived in Hoboken close to yeah, the same time you were in Jersey yeah. City. Yeah, it was terrible. And I had a car there for a while. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, mean, I moved from Rhode Island. Yeah. And um, But I think you had to have a permit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you were there more than two hours and you didn't have a permit, you were out money. I mean, it's yeah. it, it was serious. And the thing is, there are some really good ideas and really interesting things that have been tried because you're you're not – people are not paying – the cost of the parking. And I yeah, mean, right. and when you have a situation like that, it causes problems. You know, you need, we need some sort of mechanism that, you know, where people actually are paying the true cost of what they get. Can I blow your minds while bringing the entire show full circle? So yes. Butchertown is roughly the population of Norton Commons. And look at hmm. the amenities that Norton Commons has, right? Like, yeah. I, I think there's some, well, there's some, like, like amenities, like there's a, a yeah. elementary school nearby, you know, in, in, in both situations, even Norton Commons got their own elementary school, some, some restaurants, but I, I, I feel like Norton Commons is better served, has better services in that town center um, than what you might find without having to um, walk across the Death Race 2000 East Market, or sorry, East Main Street, um, to get over to Nulu, which, you know, in, in, in most of what Nulu is offering isn't sort of bread and butter, like kitchen table yeah. kinds of services. I mean, you, you can, you know, get a, a bite to eat for 15 bucks um, or a bottle of wine for 15 bucks. But, but that's, a, that's about it. But we're, we're coming up at the end here. Any, any last words on any of this? Any announcements? Not for me, no. Anything? Anything? <laughs> yeah. See what happens at what? And, and, and Yeah, Bozo. Right. With, and with your, and I'll say just real fast, Norton Commons, has, I think, has had a struggle in keeping their little grocery store mm sort of up and it's not imagine. again yeah. you need a little bit more density to make a food store work or subsidies or sure. subsidies well thank you thanks again yeah. mark for coming on thank you for listening thank to you. city state radio here at wxox lp louisville stay right here and check out the vibe with evan all right y'all see ya peace